Because of these things, we have hope. God is able to deliver us, to grant us forgiveness from our sins, as Paul says in Acts chapter 13, by faith in his name, we are delivered, freed, liberated from everything from which we could not be freed by the law of Moses. Praise be to God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to Jonah chapter 3, verse 6, where we'll begin our reading morning. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a, a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? The Lord may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. Father, we... Approach your word, I pray humbly. I ask that it would instruct us and that where the heart of Jonah still resides in our hearts, that you would do your work by your spirit in much the same way that you did with your servant Jonah and expose it and equip us to root it out so that we too may repent of sin and delight in your grace. Show us favor and blessing this morning. Help us see you for who you are and not as we have contrived you to be. I pray for those that are not able to be with us due to sickness. I pray for those that are watching online, maybe in the same situation, too sick to be here. I pray that you would encourage them and heal them. I pray for those that are serving us as a body with our security team and our nursery workers that even though in a different room, they would feel a part of our assembly together. Unite us together as a body in Jesus' name. Amen. 
It was the original plan for me to not preach to you today, but rather to have uh, another brother preach for us. So you almost got a whole month break (laughs) from my preaching. But alas, this is the Lord's providence. We will seek to cover the entire chapter of Jonah 4. And I wanted to read those verses from chapter 3 to set, as it were, the stage for beginning of chapter 4, at least. Let's begin with a question, though. What is the book of Jonah? What is it? It is a book written after the fact, primarily to the nation of Israel. It contains a word or message to the people of Nineveh, but that's not the main point of the book. It is written for Israel. For God's people, that's that's simple, that's basic, but it's very important as we come to understand why it was written in the first place and what we should take from it. And here's another question. Why is the book of Jonah necessary? Why was it written? It's a bit of an odd question to ask, but it is important in all biblical study to seek to find an answer to this question as best we can. Why did this particular author write this book or letter or song? It bears on interpretation quite a bit, especially in books when you encounter really difficult teachings like 1 Corinthians. Why was Paul writing these things and answering these issues? Galatians, the author of Hebrews. No, 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 we can go. The purpose, it, it, it does, when we can discern it, we should. And it does help us understand what the author is saying, what the Holy Spirit intends us to get. So I'll ask it another way. What problem or issue made it necessary for the book of Jonah to be written after the fact for the people of God? That's the question. What prompted the writing of Jonah? By Jonah himself or someone intimately familiar with his life? Let me just say this. This is important for all of us to remember. It is not written so that you would have an interesting tidbit of fascinating history about the unfortunate, the series of unfortunate events in the life of a prophet. You've got to remember that. That's not what prophecy is about, and it's not what the Bible is about, even when it is telling you interesting pieces of information about history. It's not primarily for historical record. There are a few things we can say as to the purpose of Jonah. Four things we'll say. Number one is the situation in Israel. The situation in Israel was very bad, especially in the North Kingdom. There was rampant idolatry, and the king who was reigning during the prophecy ministry of Jonah was an especially bad king, Jeroboam II. Not a good biblical name for you moms out there. Don't choose Jeroboam. He was a particularly bad king. And if you line the problem in in the northern kingdoms up with the purpose of Israel, it intensifies the situation. They were not the only nation at the time that had problems with idolatry. You could say that all the nations at the time had problems with idolatry. But it became a problem in Israel's case because of the purpose of Israel. Why did God call Israel to himself? Go back to the promise made to Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's seen at several points in the history of Israel that the reason that Israel is chosen, goes back in a very clear way to what God said to them at the encounter at Mount Sinai. This is the Lord speaking to the whole nation through Moses. Now, therefore, 
If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was meant to, in some sense, represent God to the world. And so their idolatry runs not only against God's morals and God's moral requirements for all people, but it runs against their their identity as a nation. So number three, there's a double peril. There's danger from God's wrath for rampant idolatry in the northern kingdom, violence. And then there's also danger in violating the purpose of their own election as a nation. They're in big trouble. And the root cause of both is sin. And then number four, yet with such peril, and especially the northern kingdom being in such a bad situation, Israel was presumptive. We are God's people. We are the children of Abraham. You can hear these things echoing with some of the religious leaders in the time of Jesus. We are of the tribes of Jacob. The Lord in his promises is still faithful to us. What does it matter if we fall into idolatry? In essence, the whole attitude of Israel was simultaneously boasting in the blessing that they had received and at the same time not caring much at all if their manner of life offended God or not. God has obligated himself to bless us. What could go wrong? So you see, in that setting, in that particular context, that's why Jonah is written. Very needful. It's needful for them during that day, and it's needful for us today for many of the same reasons. And so we come to verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Without the context that I just briefly explained for you there, there's really no reason for Jonah chapter 4 to exist at all. The necessary parts of the story have already been resolved. The prophet ran away. Well, in chapter 2, the prophet finds repentance and and does what the Lord commanded him to do. God sets his mind to show compassion. At the end of chapter 3, God shows compassion. The people of Nineveh hear the message, then they repent. All the characters in the story have already found their resolution. And all the side characters get a happy conclusion, even the fish, to the degree that he's involved in the story, he or she, you know, not going to judge, gets the satisfaction of being used by God for God's purposes. Everything is wrapped up with a bow. So what is left for us to talk about? It is primarily this. Jonah is unhappy about it all. He's angry. In many ways, if if you're familiar with the flow of Jonah, and and if you've been following along with the Bible reading plan for the church, you've read through it a couple of times now as we've been preaching through Jonah. The flavor and feel of Jonah makes a major shift in chapter 4. It's almost as if chapters 1 through 3 are leading us. It's kind of a a fast-forwarding recounting of the steps where we get to chapter 4. It's almost as if chapter 4 is the reason the whole book was written in the first place. Much the same as the prodigal son. It's really not the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of the unforgiving brother. Things slow down, and for the first time we find a dialogue between God and the prophet. Back and forth. But why does it matter for us? Why does it matter for us today, particularly, that Jonah is so upset? 
I want you to notice something, and this doesn't really bear out in most of the popular translations. But I want you to look closely at this. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. If you have a good English translation, there will be a footnote in there that says that the same word for evil and displeased is the same, and the same for the word disaster. Again, no popular English translations render the word the same way across all fronts. You have to go to some really obscure ones to see it translated consistently across. So let me read it in a way that would be consistent with the translation of evil, the way they translate the first occurrence of the word. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the evil that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and he was angry. So how can we render this in a way that is a little bit less confusing, that is also consistent, and that doesn't charge God with wickedness or evil for judging Nineveh? You could try it with the word bad, maybe use the word terrible. I think that would be an honest translation of the word in Hebrew. But perhaps another word we could use to capture the idea from all sides would be horror. Let me read it to you with that word inserted. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their horrible ways, God relented of the horror that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it, but the thing was exceedingly horrible to Jonah. It's an intentional play on words, and the author, whoever it is, whether it's Jonah or someone else who knows him intimately, is trying to get you to see what the real problem of the prophecy of Jonah is. The reason we're spending so much time setting the stage and on verse 1 is because you cannot get inside the head of Jonah, into his mind, in his heart, and see with clarity the reason that this thing is evil to him If you can't do that, then you'll leave the book essentially chuckling at Jonah for being a pout face. That's what I think we do. It's almost a comical character. So what is the it referred to in this verse? Look look closely at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah, or the thing Displeased Jonah in some translations. He's not angry at the Ninevites. He's not angry at them repenting. He's angry at God for relenting. He doesn't care if the Ninevites live or die, just like the sailors. He doesn't give a rip about them. What is exceedingly horrible to him is that God can change his posture towards them based on their repentance. That's what bothers him. And I want you to understand what's at stake here. Jonah is angry at God's freedom to be God. That's, in essence, Jonah's problem. He doesn't like that God is showing his godness in his freedom. Consider being a Jew. 
just compare the situation of the Ninevites and them receiving uh, mercy from God, grace from God. Compare what you had to do if you were a Jew to make things right between you and God. You have to go through a complicated system of sacrifice. You have to make restitution, in some cases paying multiple times what you had wronged a person. Compare the the repentance of the sailors back in chapter 1. They make sacrifices. They use the covenant name of God. They call on Yahweh. They make sacrifices and they make vows. And then Nineveh, they just, they're sad. They they, they have a showing of sadness, a fast, and, and God relents. They don't use the covenant name of God. It's just Elohim, not Yahweh. So Jonah is upset because to him it's horrible, it's terrible, it's bad, it's evil for God to just forgive and relent from disaster. These Ninevites have not paid their dues. A quick turn from their way and you relent? No, they haven't made any sacrifices, they've made no vows, and you relent? It's all motivated out of fear, Lord. No love for you. And you relent? You see, Jonah thinks he has a deep understanding of how the universe should work. And he thinks he knows what is fitting in the matters of forgiveness and grace. And because the Lord does not conform to Jonah's functional doctrine of grace and forgiveness, he's angry. That's the problem. Essentially, the Lord has exposed in the heart of Jonah that regardless of what Jonah says he believes about the Lord in his head, his heart actually hates the godness of God. Jonah thinks that he knows what would be just for God to do. And because God does not do that, he, in his emotions, accuses God essentially of being unjust in showing Mercy, it's exceedingly evil to him. Do we not run up against the very same thing in our own hearts? What about you? If God were to forgive your most hated enemy, let's say they don't repent or make a full turnaround like you think they should, Maybe you would say, that's not out of love. It's it's just out of fear. Some of us would be jolly well confident enough to look at them and speak on God's behalf and say, the Lord doesn't forgive you. We're just like Jonah. When some of us read statements like this from Romans 9, 18, then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Is there not a tinge of the same emotional revulsion to that idea? If it means what I think it means, does that not feel exceedingly horrible? Consider Ahab. Here to pick a horrible king. (laughs) Worse than Jeroboam. In many ways, the worst king of the northern tribes was Ahab. And at the end of his life, near the end of his life, God is pronouncing judgment against him and disaster And then he just gets sad and dejected and wears sackcloth. And God says to the prophet, have you seen how Ahab responded and humbled himself before me? 
Therefore, I will not bring the disaster on him during his day, but during his son's life and reign. How do you feel about that? Ahab, such a wicked king. And in a moment of brokenness and contrition, God relents. There is no merit deserving of God's mercy and grace in the Ninevites or in Ahab. Though to Jonah, this showing of grace is exceedingly evil because it seems arbitrary and unjust. So the question being asked implicitly is something that the book of Jonah does not fully answer. How can God be just in his showing of grace? How does that work? Maybe the Israelites thought that because they had that sacrificial system with the blood of bulls and goats, that for them it was just for God to show grace. But we know from Psalm 51, Hebrews, that the blood of bulls and goats does not deal with sin. So the question is begged throughout the history of Israel all the way up until Golgotha, when everyone now stands in awe that God, yes, is able to forgive whomever he will, and he's completely just. In doing so, verses two through four, we see anger towards the God who is there. And so he prays. He sees this as exceedingly horrible, as exceedingly evil. And he prays to the Lord. Jonah is upset. He's very angry, but he still goes to the Lord in his anger. Let me be very clear. It is not good to be angry at God. But when you inevitably become angry or frustrated or confused by God, He welcomes you in for the dispute. He says in Isaiah, come, let's argue this out, essentially. If there is any progress in Jonah or any redeeming character qualities is that even in his will to die, I mean, he wants to die, and even in his complete rejection of God and his ways and rejection of God's freedom, he still maintains some level of faith in God because he's praying to him. You're the Lord and there is no under, but I'm not happy with you. He's angry at the God who is there. We will see in the coming passages that God's grace towards Jonah is on display in an even more intimate way. God is not satisfied with our raw obedience. Jonah obeyed. The reason Jonah is written is to show that God wants us to delight in his wisdom and ways as we obey. He wants us to rest in him. Jonah says, here's his prayer. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is an interesting statement because if you go back to chapter one, there's no evidence of a prayer at all. So one of three things is maybe happening here. Either he thinks he prayed and didn't really. Anyone? I am praying for you. You know, like, well, maybe I have been praying for you. In reality, It just seems like as you go back and read chapter one that he's just, he immediately starts running. There's no dialogue. There's no back and forth between him and the Lord. Two, the other option is that he actually did pray and it's not recorded. And he entered some kind of debate with God. What? Nineveh? Wait, are you sending them there so that they'll repent? You are, aren't you? Nope, I'm not going. Or number three, he's just saying these things in his heart and in his mind, and he knows that 
The Lord sees and understands even the murmurings of his heart. How can you do this, God? This is unjust. I would rather die than to be part of you, God, showing grace unjustly to the Ninevites. So let's try to give John the benefit of the doubt. I think we should. If God, the Lord, asked you to do something that ran against everything that you thought or understood to be true, how would you respond? Consider Abraham with Isaac. Now think there were questions in Abraham's mind? Consider simple statements like this from the New Testament. Love your enemies. Rejoice in suffering. Bless those who curse you. We could riff on that a little bit. Bless on those who take away your freedoms, who impose mandates on you, who kill your Christian brethren overseas. Bless and do not curse. Paul says, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Ought you not rather to mourn? These are counterintuitive statements, and God commands us to do them. We just kind of explain them away. But these are as jarring as to our sensibilities of what is right and wrong as it is for Jonah to go and preach repentance to such a city as Nineveh. We should have a level of respect, I think, for Jonah. At least he's honest enough to run the other way. Realizing that his conception of God does not match with what God is asking him to do. I think when we run up against something that God is asking us to do and it doesn't line up with our conception of God, we just kind of ignore it. We try to explain it away or we fall back on our tendency of creating idols and we just make God in our own image so that there's no contradiction. And he says, For I knew that you are a gracious and God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knows the truth. This is correct theology. He's being honest about his reasons and motivations. And this statement, this creed, would have been something he would have always known. But his perspective, evidently, was so limited that he did not understand just how gracious and merciful God was. Which is to say, he didn't really understand grace. What's interesting about this statement here is that he doesn't even finish the the quotation from Exodus 34. Here's the full quotation when, when God reveals his glory to Moses by declaring his name. This is what happens. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If Jonah had a problem with the first part of God's declaration of his name and his mercy, could he not just quote the second part about not clearing the guilty to soothe his mind? Could he just trust that God will by no means clear the guilty, obey the voice of the Lord, preach to Nineveh, and trust that God will sort it out in the end? 
The problem is that Jonah essentially wants the scales of wrath and grace to be perfectly balanced. You can't let them tip one way or the other, or Jonah will charge God with injustice. And what this commission, the commission to Jonah to go to Nineveh, what it reveals is that God would rather show mercy and grace and compassion than to act in wrath and judgment. If you cannot get that settled in your heart and mind, you will do so much damage to your walk with the Lord. This is so key. And many of us may have at the center of our theology the same error, the same error of Jonah, and not even know it. And we'll leave thinking of how what, what a funny character he is and not realize that the rebuke lands on us too. There is an intentional disproportionality in God's own description of himself. Mercy and grace and forgiveness to thousands and thousands and visiting iniquity to the third and fourth. What Jonah came face to face with is this simple and awesome and wonderful and glorious truth that God's utter freedom to be who he is is best expressed and seen in his power and will and determination to show grace to the undeserving. To those who have never and will never do enough to merit God's grace. That is how God shows himself to be God more than in any other thing. Only grace brings to glory, as Richard Sibbs says. Now, therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. At first glance, this may seem impossible to relate to. It may seem silly. Yet, if we consider how most people struggle in their relationship with the Lord and his freedom to do as he will, this is right where many people land. The truth about God and his freedom to be God and to do whatever it is that his will has determined to do is too horrible for many. They would rather die than to believe in such a God. I've been pressing very hard on this point because I think all of us at some level, and maybe you this morning, have the same problem Jonah has. Or at least the seeds of unbelief still rest in all of us. How foolish and how proud would it be for you to presume that you have a completely accurate view of God and that you respond at an affectional level to who he is in all the proper ways. Why God pursues Jonah is because he wants Jonah to feel the right way about who God is. Do you? Whether you realize it or not, if the Lord were to push you and test you in some of the same ways that he pushed and tested Jonah, the Lord will reveal that you as well have an attitude problem with the utter freedom and godness of God and his will and desire to show mercy. What if God chose you to be the means and instrument to bring salvation to the Taliban? 
What if God chose you to be the means of grace and mercy to the vilest criminals on death row? What if God has ordered you to show mercy and compassion and grace to those that are, in your mind, ruining this country? What if God has commissioned you to show mercy and forgiveness and kindness to those in your workplace and family sphere who are nothing but unkind and unpleasant to you? And set all that hard stuff aside. Let's just have real talk. None of those are as hypothetical as they may seem, honestly. But what about your brothers and sisters in Christ? The ones that are different than you, at a different life stage as you, in a different age group as you. He's ordered you, commissioned you, enabled you to love and show compassion and grace and welcoming posture to them. And we struggle with that. When we get in a pattern of only caring about people who are just like us and only extending real love and compassion to people who are easy to get along with, we show that we ourselves are just like Jonah. And as sad and as tragically hilarious as it may be, some of us would rather die and go to heaven than to love those God has put in our lives to love. Is your behavior before, during, and after the service during the week in view of what you really care about reflecting the heart of God or reflecting the heart of Jonah? You can say that you delight in the grace of God all you want, being happy that He has shown grace to you, but His grace is at work in us to show grace and compassion towards others. We're not willing to do that. It means we don't understand grace. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This is the first thing in the book that is personalized to Jonah. Everything else that the Lord has said is messages to be given to other people. But this is something God says directly to him. Jonah is angry at God's freedom to be God. Jonah is angry that God's behavior does not fit into his categories for God. God has escaped the little box in Jonah's mind that was fitting for God to stay in. And he's angry. The Lord's answer is rhetorical. You do well to be angry? What good is it for you to be angry at me, Jonah? You're only going to destroy yourself, Jonah. What benefit is there for you to be angry at what I do in my own freedom and wisdom? What good is it, dear Jonah, for you to be upset with me for asking you to be a part of me exercising my freedom? What good is it for you to be upset? Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah doesn't answer because there's not much that can't be said. An ironclad question. There's no good. There's no benefit, Lord, but I'm still angry. It's not as if Jonah yielded in the argument. He just becomes more embittered, and the rest of the text shows that, I think. In the verses that follow, we see God's grace on display in a way that we might not expect. Anger, discomfort, and God's providence. Verses 5 through 8. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under the shade till he would see, till he should see what would become of the city. He makes some sort of shelter, that's what a booth means, and it provides some short sort of shade. Let's say that five times fast. And he goes to the east of the city. This is significant. Which would be the direction he would go if he were to return to his homeland? 
southwest. He goes to the east of Nineveh. Shows that this, this anger in his heart towards God is such that he, he may not even want to go and identify as being an Israelite anymore. It seems like odd behavior for a person who wants to die to build a shelter for themselves, right? It shows that Jonah became angry at God's mercy in real time. He's still inside the city when he sees it and it is exceedingly evil to him because he's still inside the city. And then in verse 5, he leaves the city to the east. It shows, I think what this shows, this, this is perhaps some speculation, but I think it shows that Jonah is holding out hope that God will still destroy them. Maybe they'll double back on their repentance. They won't really hold a fast as long as they plan to, and that God would relent of relenting. But it also might be the case that Jonah wants a leg to stand on in his case against God. He's waiting to see if God really will go through this exceedingly evil thing in sparing the Ninevites. Yet in Jonah's stubbornness, in his stubbornness and unwilling to accept God's freedom to be God, the Lord begins to show mercy to him. Now the Lord appointed you could probably translate that provided. The Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over him, over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So he already has shade. He's made for himself a little tent, and, and the Lord provides him even more shade. The Lord shows him kindness to help him with his discomfort. This seems like odd behavior for the Lord. He's asking to die. He's mad at God for being God. And God gives him more shade. Jonah responds with happiness towards God's compassion towards him. That's interesting. You can see where this is going. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed or provided a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed or provided a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. So we're in, in perhaps the span of less than 24 hours, the Lord watches Jonah leave Nineveh, build some sort of shelter. The Lord then gives him more shade with a plant, and then he sends a worm to destroy it. And he appoints a wind to come and afflict Jonah even more, probably destroying whatever was left of his little shelter, He's out there, unprotected from the elements, unprotected from the sun, and he's miserable. And I can empathize with Jonah quite a bit. As many of you know, I do not like the sun. It is literally a nuclear bomb in the sky. So all you outdoorsy people that love the sun, I don't get it. The sun can be very oppressive. And here's the thing. The sun is simultaneously in this text, and in a literary sense, it is, it is a, an analogy for God's mercy and wrath simultaneously. God's wrath and oppression is signified in this kind of uh, drama that's playing out with the plant to, be, to, to show Jonah his thinking is off about God's wrath towards the Ninevites. But in other places of Scripture, we hear that God causes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. It's a simultaneous imagery here. It's quite fascinating. 
Second half of verse 8. He asked that he might die. So he's back to being having a death wish again. It is better for me to die than to live. This is similar to the grumblings of the people of Israel when they leave Egypt. When things go bad, they don't have enough water, they don't have enough food. They say things like this. Were there not enough graves for us in Egypt that we could be buried there that you have brought us out into the wilderness to die by the sword? The sufferings that Jonah encounters all ordained by the providence of God, expose the disordered concerns in his heart. Say that again. It's an important statement to understand the way God works in your life too. The sufferings Jonah encounters, all ordained by the providence of God, expose the disordered concerns in his heart. What about us? Might it be the case that the Lord ordains the frustrations and, yes, even the sufferings in your life to expose disordered concerns. This is how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. The providences of God are frequently divine stress tests to show what is in our hearts. What really bothers you? What typically angers you? What do you get exceedingly happy about? Before we leave the narrative thinking of how silly Jonah is for being such a pout face, consider that we follow the same patterns in our very emotions often. What really excites you or motivates you or makes you sad or makes you angry? Is it your hobbies? Is it your comfort? Is it how your job is going? Is it how your friends treat you? Is it how the things in the nation or in your state are going? Or is it the lost receiving God's mercy? Is your heart set to delight, not just in God showing mercy to you, but in you getting to be a part of God showing mercy to others? What really concerns us? Is it what we eat, what we drink, what we wear, where we live, all the things that the Gentiles seek? Or is it seeking and building and inviting more people into the kingdom of God? And to present everyone mature in Christ. Verses 9 and 11, we see the Lord's utter freedom on display. Verse 9, But God said to Jonah, "Do Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough even to die. So it's the same question that the Lord posed to Jonah earlier in the chapter, but just with addition of the phrase, for the plant. And you see what the Lord is doing. He's drawing Jonah off sides to engage him in a dispute. Jonah didn't answer back when he addressed him about his anger in verse 2. But now that God has brought in the plant and destroyed the plant and given comfort, taken comfort away, now Jonah's ready to engage, to talk about it. That's how the Lord works in your life, whether we like it very much or not. God catches Jonah up in a drama of his own comforts. You see that the Lord has him in a trap, right? You see where this is going. God's logic is on display. 
Jonah is so mad at losing his comforts and being under the heat of the sun that he is even willing to die. And he cannot see past his own comforts enough to understand that the misery that he feels under the sun in the Middle East, under that burning ball of gas in the sky, is nothing compared to the misery of a poor soul under the wrath of God in hell. Verse 10, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. So God invites Jonah in this text to, to kind of a more eternal perspective, does he not? You're so concerned over this little thing that lasted just maybe less than 24 hours. The implicit invitation, I think, is to come to see things from God's perspective. Have a more eternal outlook, Jonah. See things from my vantage point as the creator. You didn't make the plant. You only had it for a day, and you're this upset? The things we're concerned about, while not as obviously silly as being upset about a plant being killed, are yet this same type of thing. We didn't really labor for it, whatever it is that you're upset about. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And all that we are generally upset or concerned about is fleeting. The cares of this world, the world that itself is passing away with all its desires. Verse 11. And should I not pity Nineveh? See, God has maneuvered in his dealings with Jonah, both in his providence, removing comforts and conversation to bring Jonah to a point where he has nothing to say to that question other than agree. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? I've always thought it was a hilarious way to end the book that, Jonah, if you can't pity the Ninevites, at least pity their cattle. you got these poor animals that are going to suffer the wrath of God too. Can't you at least show some pity for them? Notice that the Lord doesn't answer Jonah's deeper question. He, he in a sense, sidesteps the main problem that Jonah has. The, the problem, just as a reminder, that Jonah has, I think it's explicit in verses 1 compared with chapter 3, verse 10, is that this is evil. For you, God, to just let them off the hook, what seems to be like letting them off the hook, for, for not giving their pound of flesh and doing penance or whatever it is that Jonah wanted them to do, becoming Israelites, whatever it was. Jonah saw that as evil. God doesn't answer that question. He invites Jonah to see things as God sees them. Should I not pity Nineveh? And here's the Lord's argument repeated or restated. Is it right for you to be so upset about the loss of the plant that gave you some comfort? Can I not be upset or concerned about the potential destruction of people that I created? And there's no answer Jonah can make. It's an ironclad defense. 
But as I said, it doesn't directly answer the question in Jonah's heart. The deeper question and issue that Jonah has is, but why? How can you do that, God? God's trap, as it were, is to say, if you are allowed to care so much for anything in your life and your comfort, can I, the creator, not care about people made in my image and also much cattle? But implicit within God's trap in this logic is an insistence on God's freedom. Without putting it too bluntly, isn't God able to do what he wants? Bottom line, God is not interested. Understand this. God is not interested in satisfying our sensibilities and balancing out his so-called attributes. Rather, he is interested in demonstrating his glory in his utter freedom to show mercy and grace and compassion to whomever he will. And he desires especially to show grace to the most undeserving. They don't know their right hand from their left. Am I not free to show grace to whomever I will? And so we end with a few what I call implicit appeals. These are appeals that I think you can find in the text. They're not explicit. But they, they are appeals from God to us to enter his perspective and to be okay and happy even with God being God. Number one, God appeals to us to delight in grace more than wrath. Why? Because God delights in showing grace more than he delights in showing wrath, or else Jonah wouldn't exist. It seems a very basic thing to say that we should love God's grace more than we love his wrath. Who could have a problem with God's grace? Think of the disciples in Luke chapter 9. Samaritan village rejects Jesus, and maybe because there are Samaritans, here's what James and John say. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus turns and rebukes them. We're so trigger happy with God's grace and condemnation, and we don't understand the implications that that has for us on Judgment Day. With the same manner of strictness that you judge others, it will be dealt to you. Terrifying. Number two, God appeals to us to delight in him showing grace even to our enemies, to the Gentiles. Do you understand that this issue of God showing grace to people other than his covenant people is what made the Jews in many situations angry at him enough to kill him? There are several situations. You can see the story of the tenants in Luke chapter 20, but one of the most fascinating one to me is that Jesus picks a fight. In Luke's account, he, he understands what they're thinking and he starts telling them things that he knows is going to offend them about God's freedom to show grace to whomever he will. Were there not more widows in Elijah's day? Were there not more lepers in Elisha's day? But only one widow was fed and only one leper was healed and they weren't Israelites. And the people his own hometown gets so angry that they want to throw him off a cliff. God's freedom to show mercy to people that aren't like us, that are our enemies, 
causes rage. And Paul himself, in Acts chapter 22, he's recounting what God, through Jesus, had said to him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Here's how Luke records what happened. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. God showing grace to our enemies, those that we think or feel at some deep, dark level don't deserve God's grace, is what draws us off sides and shows the rage we still have in us towards God's freedom to be God. And shows us that we don't understand grace. Number three, God appeals to us to delight in the grace of God as those who need it. This is what Jonah didn't understand. Israel and maybe this is why he wrote or someone else wrote the story of Jonah after the fact, is to remind Israel, you need God's grace too. If there's no hope for Nineveh, there's no hope for you. In fact, your situation is worse because you've received the law and you still refuse to obey God. Like, if you will bear with me for the analogy Frodo finding it in, it in his heart the ability to show pity towards Gollum because if there is no hope for Gollum, there is no hope for Frodo either. Lord God showing mercy to the most detestable in our eyes is a reminder that there is hope for us. This is how Paul says it in 1 Timothy 1.16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. We're saved as detestable, wretched sinners because it reminds everyone else that there's hope for them too. Number four, God appeals to us to delight in his freedom to be God, to do whatsoever he pleases. I have two verses here, Romans 11.33, but I'll read from Daniel. It's from the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar. His dominion, speaking of God, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's our God. And God appeals to us to trust in his faithfulness. His forgiveness of the wicked is not arbitrary. We don't have time to read it, but your homework, as it were, is to read Romans 3, 21 through 26. God, in the gospel, in his putting forth his son, as we alluded to earlier, shows that it is not arbitrary for him to pass over former sins even if it took hundreds, even thousands of years for God to send His Son as the substitute to pay for, in essence, God's freedom to show mercy to whomever He will, we can trust Him. Every sin will meet just retribution or has already in the cross or in hell forever. God is not arbitrary in His forgiveness, but the cross authorizes Him to do whatever He will. And lastly, 
God appeals to us to participate in his grace by showing it and making it known. This is the final and all-encompassing test, is it not? If you really understand and rejoice in God's grace, the grace of God that is now made possible and freely available to all who would call on Him in the person of His Son, then you will be eager to share that grace with others. And maybe the reason that many of us are so lethargic and passionless or weak in our evangelism and our boldness to speak the word of Christ is that we think in some way we deserve grace. Because we're like Jonah. But if you can see that you need grace just as much as the Ninevites, then you will delight in showing grace to others in personal kindness, just basic personal kindness, and in sharing the gospel. May it be so for the sake of the fame of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray. Great God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that we are the foremost. May we be humble enough to see ourselves as the foremost sinner. May that realization clear the way in our hearts to a posture of joy. That we would not join Jonah in his bitterness and frustration at the way that you work but would understand that we need grace just as much as anyone else and delight and be happy that you have chosen out of no obligation to show grace and mercy and compassion. May we yield to your heart and understand that you are utterly free. Your love is boundless. May we rest in that love. In Jesus' name.